0: Shut up, and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund.
1: Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. What's it like to write about the NFL and cover this year's NFL draft? We'll get into that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 65 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7, that's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Los Angeles Clippers and the Utah Jazz battled their way to Game 7 in the opening round of the NBA playoffs with the Jazz pulling out the win in L.A. to advance to face the Golden State Warriors in the next round. Some players on the Warriors, however, voiced their displeasure to play the Jazz, not because of a harder matchup, but what the hell is there to do in Utah? It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. The Utah Jazz proved to the NBA world that they're not a team to take for granted surviving a seven-game series to upset the Clippers in the opening round of the playoffs to set up a battle with Golden State. The Warriors have seemingly punched a one-way ticket to the NBA Finals after another dominant season in the West, and without fear for any team that might stand in their way. However, when the Jazz won the series and sent the Clippers packing before the conference finals for yet another year, some Golden State players voiced their displeasure of having to face the Jazz. Not from the excitement the Jazz will bring to the court, but for the lack thereof that Utah offers off of it. Regarding the nightlife that Utah offers compared to L.A., Golden State's Matt Barnes didn't mince words when talking to ESPN. No comparison. There's no such thing, man, Barnes said. He continued, saying, there's no nightlife in Utah. Obviously, as players, you want to be able to have a little bit of nightlife. But the main focus is winning games. Me personally, I want to get out there because I want to beat the Clippers. That's my former team, and my kids are out there. But as far as nightlife, there's no comparison to nightlife in Utah and L.A. Andre Iguodala also joined the conversation, saying, The problem with Utah is that you're just sitting there and your mind is, like dead because in LA you still got energy for the game. Because you're in LA you're like man this is just the vibe in LA but in Utah it can kind of lull you to sleep. And then you've slept too long or bored out of my mind and now you've got to try to pump yourself up for the game. You know you're in the playoffs and you're supposed to be pumped anyway but the vibe is just like Man, let's just get out of here. Mike Brown, the acting head coach for the Warriors while Steve Kerr battles some health ailments, disagreed. Quote, I think if you really want to find something to get into, I don't care where you are, you can find something to get into. End quote. Sounds like Mike Brown isn't what you'd call the life of the party. In a city where John Stockton, one of the best players in franchise history, can most likely walk freely without a passing glance, perhaps that's just because, well, it's John Stockton. But it doesn't help matters if you were to Google search Salt Lake City, expecting to find some excitement. Two of the top 37 results under nightlife are chilies. Nothing starts a night to remember quite like Baby Back Ribs. I want my baby back ribs. baby
0: back ribs. I want my baby, Chili baby back ribs.
1: I got my baby back ribs. And if nightlife isn't quite your thing, you can search for the top ten things to do in Salt Lake City in the daylight. There you'll find such excitement as the big Cottonwood Canyon, Temple Square, a library, a museum, a conference center, a garden, a tabernacle, a temple, and a cathedral. Those Mormons sure know how to throw a party. I'm John Lund for sports news read like real news. Let's take a quick break to say our prayers. When we come back, we'll talk to an NFL writer who was in Philly for the NFL draft to tell us all we need to know from the three-day affair. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to The Bridge at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know... Which teams won and lost the NFL Draft, and why? Speaking of the NFL Draft, it's something that has grown into an event that some might argue deserves its own three-day holiday. From a one-day affair to this three-day extravaganza that it's become, NFL fans will spend weeks before and weeks after the draft talking about it, and it can get a little overwhelming to the casual fan. Thankfully, we've got some help in Eric Edholm, who's an NFL writer for Yahoo Sports and the Shutdown Corner blog. We've already spoken to one of the cogs to the Shutdown Corner in Frank Schwab. So it was great to be joined by Eric and have him help us along with the draft because he certainly knows his stuff. We'll talk about how he got into the writing business, if he was indeed the creator of naming everyone's favorite NFL scandal, Deflategate. What it's like to be at the draft, a rundown of the impact some of the picks will have, who won and lost the draft, and more. You can follow Eric on Twitter. He's at Eric underscore Edholm. That's E-R-I-C underscore E-D-H-O-L-M. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Eric Edholm. He is an NFL writer for Yahoo Sports and the Shutdown Corner blog. Eric, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you?
2: Everything's good. Yeah, pleasure's mine. Very uh, very interesting, exciting draft uh, in the rearview mirror now.
1: Excellent. There's a lot to talk about, of course, as there is every year. I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit before getting into that draft, I believe your writing career took off with Sporting News many years ago now, probably to you. Could you give a Cliff Notes version of sorts of how you got your start with writing and the steps to where you got to now?
2: Yeah, sure. No, I, I started as, a, as kind of a grunt uh, on the desk at Sporting News back in, I guess this would have been... August of 1999 or so. Uh, I remember it was about two or three weeks before uh, Walter Payton died. That was sort of the big, the first big news day there that I can remember. And um, yeah, I was an editor, and they threw some writing assignments my way, and I kind of got a uh, you know a little foothold there. And um, and then I moved up eventually to work at, at, at Pro Football Weekly, and that's when football kind of became my focus. I did some other college sports at at Sporting News. So, uh, yeah, I was there for a long time. Uh, The the Pro Football Weekly shut down. I did some freelance work here and there, Wall Street Journal and radio and different stuff. And and then started with Yahoo, uh, I believe, in July of uh, 2013. So coming up on my fourth year here. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I love the NFL. It's a great league to cover. Um, you know, not a perfect league, of course, but, uh, uh, a lot of enjoyment from that. And, uh, just, uh, have fun kind of covering all kinds of different angles on, on the league.
1: We know that nothing really circles the wagons as far as news goes quite like the national football league. Is there ever any downtime for you or is this sort of a position where you always have to be ready to break whatever news might be available for the NFL?
2: Yeah, obviously, there's it's one of those things that's almost a year-round deal. And you know, if I write any kind of newsworthy story in May or June, I mean, it gets a crazy amount of, of reads because people are so desperate for football news at that point. But it, it does slow down here a little bit. This little stretch all the way through, I would say mid-July, um, we can work on some long-term projects and some fun features and try to get people on the phone. And I've got a few things in the hopper, so. It's a little slower. This is my uh, my downtime coming up. Get to take this, spend a little time with the wife and kids. But uh, for the most part, it never really does stop. And you're always thinking about the next season and the next project that's coming up. So it it is a little wild.
1: I also need to get this out. You've noted in your Twitter bio that you might have coined the phrase deflate gate. Could you elaborate (laughs) on that?
2: Yeah, it was funny. Uh, you know, I was on duty the night of the AFC Championship game uh, in early 2015. It was, uh, you know, the conclusion of the 2014 season, Patriots-Colts, and it's a blowout, you know. I mean, the game is, was in hand by mid-third quarter, and so I had my, my game story 95% written, and, I, you know, I was in great shape. It was the night game, so that was good. I wanted to uh, – my my kids uh, – or maybe my wife was, was – just pregnant at the time. So I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. But um, yeah, so I was uh, a little bit uh, out of my mind at that point. And I wrote the story and was about to head to bed and was kind of flipping through Twitter and saw the initial report about these underinflated footballs and thought, huh, well, this is interesting, you know, and dug up a little more and figured out, you know what, this is a story. Some people are going to be interested in this. And so I wrote up a, a story that night and I put as the headline, Deflate gate. Now, normally, you know, the whole Watergate, gate gate suffix, I hate it, right? But it rhymes. You know, I had to put it up there. And so I wrote the story. And of course, it turned into this big thing and didn't think anything of it. And about a week and a half later, this reporter calls me and says, Hey, I did an analytics study. I ran through the web and it appears your story was the first to use the term deflate gate. And I said, Really? Okay. Well, that's interesting and weird. And of course, I, I incurred the ire of every Patriots fan who got so sick of that term, but uh, I did. I did remind him I grew up in New England. You know, I'm, I'm at least one of them. I'm not a Patriots fan, but I, I you know, I, I was born there. So you can take it easy on me if you want to. But yeah, apparently I was the, the first internet published version of that word. So I don't know if that makes it a good thing or a bad thing.
1: So if you were able to copyright that, what you're saying is you probably wouldn't be talking to me right now.
2: Yeah, exactly. Now this would be like, let's get ready to rumble or one, you know, one of these famous sports uh, sayings or something like that. I should have, I should have been a little smarter about that way back when.
1: No one really knows what'll be a viral sensation. If only we had those answers in front of us, but it was great that you were on top of that. It's, it just goes to show you what this position entails. When you're covering a sport, you have to (laughs) run with things a little bit before somebody else does. And Look what we've turned into now, and I guess that'll be it for talking about Deflategate on the show. I'm sure people are like, <laughs> again with this. So to the draft itself, before getting into the picks and the rundowns, you wrote a piece previewing it in a way that told the story of how this yearly hysteria really got started with two innovators of really fully immersing themselves into the draft in Mel Kuyper Jr. and Joel Bucksbaum, who has unfortunately passed away. What made you decide to tell that story and what was your biggest takeaway from getting to write that?
2: Yeah, no, it's funny because I, I worked with Joel for a brief time. I was at PFW when he was, uh, you know, the sort of the, the the monster he was. I mean, he was he was so on top of the draft stuff and, I mean, just was an incredible figure and such a mysterious figure in draft circles and, um he was always so fascinating to me. You know, he didn't really use his computer that much. He had to be forced into even having one in the first place. You know, he, he filed handwritten notes and left voicemails on people's machines saying what he wanted and things like that. So I worked with him a brief time. And actually, I was covering Saints Panthers in Week 17 of the 2002 season. And I called my editor to said, hey, did you get my story? And I hadn't heard back from him. And he said, yeah. And, uh, oh, by the way, Joel died. And it was such a shocking thing. I mean, Joel was only 48 years old. I I was pretty, you know, young and new in the business at the time. But even then I had a a respect for how big a figure he was. So I had a personal connection to Joel. And then a few months later, there was a, a memorial service at the combine for him in walks Al Davis in walks, Bill Belichick in walks, you know, uh, you know, all these NFL heavyweights, Jerry Angelo, and, 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 you know, you could name off about seven general managers and they walked in the room, this little tight cramped room and Belichick gets up and speaks and just tells these incredible stories about his relationship with, with Joel. Well, I mean, I sat on that story for, you know, years, almost 15 years now. And, and I mean, other people were in that room have told similar stories before, but Every year, I kind of thought about, boy, you know, Joel did his thing, and Mel Kuyper was such a big figure as well. I'm going to write about these guys one day, and I was having a conversation last summer, well after the draft, it would have been June or July, with with Scott Pioli, who is the former Patriots GM, now assistant GM with the Falcons, and he knew both of them, and he's known both, you know, Kuyper for years, but he knew Joel very well, and he would say, yeah, you got to write the story, and I'll help you out with it, and we'll talk again, and... And I just decided to kind of dig it up. And Mel was great. I mean, he's a, he's a giant in our, in our industry, and he's done more to help popularize the draft than anyone. And, uh, you know, Joel did his thing, and they filled such different voids, and they were such different personalities. So I know I've been going on a while. If you're interested at all in it, read it. You know, it, it was, they were just, their, their differences were so fascinating to me. And I think they helped create the, uh, the craze that is the NFL draft now.
1: Yeah, I'll definitely attach that to my show notes as well for people listening, because it's a great read just to get some behind the scenes, especially on Joel, just because he lived such a sheltered life in a way, but was so damn good at what he did, especially with not even having the information that we do now, painstakingly going through papers upon papers to get the information out and he was really the guy that everyone went to for their information so it was a great way to get to learn about how this really got started into quite the affair that it was and I know you were in Philly for the draft just explaining in a way if you can what that atmosphere was like there and how many people show up for this thing every year.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm based in Chicago, so I had seen the you know my hometown uh, host the draft the previous two years, and it was very segmented. You had the theater on one side of Michigan Avenue, and on the other, you had Grant Park, which was hosting uh, the the outdoor event where the fans were were predominantly at. And so there was this disconnect a little bit. I was in the theater working, and there were some fans in there as well. And Goodell announced the picks, and so it, it didn't feel like you know, everybody was kind of all in this together and they move on to Philadelphia this year. And it was this giant, I mean, I compared it to Lollapalooza. I mean, it felt like a concert, you know, like a musical, uh, you know, showcase more than it did uh, a draft and it was uh, a huge thing. It went all the way from like the Franklin Institute, if you know, Philadelphia at all, up to the steps, the Rocky steps uh, at the art museum there. And it just was a really cool setting. And I think, you know, the, the fans embraced it. Everybody was out wearing their jerseys and it was great weather. It was really warm both days. And, um, you know, it was it was a cool scene. I've heard Dallas could be the favorite for the next draft. I think they will move it. I think you're gonna make it kind of a traveling road show. But yeah, every year this thing gets sort of bigger and it takes on a new identity and a new form. And we saw that this uh, this past week. Do you
1: miss the days when the draft was just completed on a Saturday, or is this current format where they host the first round on a Thursday and then carry it over into the weekend working
2: now? Yeah, I mean, I think the NFL for years, and I just actually wrote a piece a couple days ago about this. People may think I'm out of my mind, but um, the NFL has actually tried to make this a four-day event. They've tried to find that fourth day, and one of the things that they have considered – is letting fans vote for an eighth round, where their team gets a sort of fan vote-driven pick, uh, and it's something that they the league is very much put to the side. I mean, it's not an idea that they're like actively looking at, but they had considered it. They met with these people with the idea of making it kind of, you know, a a American Idol type of deal where these these unheralded prospects. Get promoted online and and on TV and and with hype videos and analytics and stats and scouting reports. So I know for a fact they've tried to milk this thing and make it even bigger. I mean, in 2010 they went from, you know, a Saturday Sunday daytime event to a prime time thing, and the 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 TV ratings are huge. And so they think, how do we get a fourth day? A and B, how do we make it so that people are tuning in at the end of a draft? Because most people aren't sticking around for Mr. Irrelevant. I mean, my, they read it online. They follow the little little uh, tracker online or whatever. You know, they can get that information anywhere. There's no there's no value in watching it necessarily. So that's one of the tricks. And I think the NFL is trying to make this a, an even bigger spectacle. And so that's one of the ideas that they've considered over the years is, is It would be crazy to think that that fans could have any kind of say on an undrafted uh, free agent.
1: I'm sure they wouldn't turn down that extra cash flow, though, for that extra day. Oh, sure. No, that's why
2: you do it. Yep. Yep. Can you
1: take us through briefly what the draft is like for you as a member of the media, as in who you're surrounded by, how you're getting information, if you could be that guy that breaks the draft picks before they're actually announced on TV, things like that for those three days?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I have relationships with some agents and also some teams to the point where that you know, three or four weeks before the draft, they'll say, "Hey, you know, if we have something, we'll throw it your way." But there's so much craziness that goes on. I mean, the draft, the draft, especially the first round or second round, even. You know, there are trades, there are scenarios that unfold that aren't expected. Everything is kind of mayhem. And so those promises get left to the side. And I totally get it. Like, I'm not going to bug an agent to the point where I'm like, hey, did your boy get picked or whatever? You know, it happens. So all all good intentions aside, these things, you know, it's really hard to break news. I mean, you might be sitting in the media workroom and hear the announcement of the pick or hear the terms of a trade maybe a minute or 2 minutes or 5 minutes before the networks are on it. So in terms of like quote unquote breaking news, you know, I'm passing on the information that I'm hearing as it's being told to us. It's not like I've got these, you know, sources in the league office who are leaking picks to me or anything like that. So, but yeah, it's crazy man. I did some video stuff. I was writing all the way up to the draft. I was writing first pick through the 108th pick. Uh, a quick skinny on each guy and saying good pick bad pick whatever here's our, our so the first three rounds i did a pick by pick analysis and you know it gets a little wild there you, you might fall a pick or two or five behind depending on what round it's in and uh it's busy it's hectic you know there's curveballs every few minutes and, and trades complicate things but it's a lot of fun too
1: Before getting into the actual picks, did anyone come after you after the mock draft and the actual draft happened for something you might have said that wronged them in a way, or anyone that might've been angry at something that you might've predicted that didn't come true?
2: Yeah, only about, you know, eight or 900 times, I would (laughs) say not that much, you know, uh, (laughs) people get very fired up. And, And if you don't know their team in their eyes, as well as they do, they're going to call it fair game. Cause look, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, my stuff is out there. I'm, I'm putting my opinion behind something, but I better darn be sure I'm educated on, and I better be certain that I have an inkling of what might be happening. You know, you may make a, a mock draft pick to a team. That's not going to happen. That's fine. But at least it should be the kind of thing that potentially could happen. Does that make sense? Like, you know, if I'm saying that the chargers are going to take a quarterback at number seven and anyone in the organization would tell you that's just not going to happen. Well, okay. I'm just, you know, randomly picking here. Then I've got bad information or I'm throwing something out there that really isn't a possible scenario. Um, You know, so I try to be as accurate as I can and I know I'm not going to nail every pick in a mock draft or, you know, I know I'm not going to be right about every prospect. I may look at taco Charlton and say, you know, he's okay, he's good, but, you know, maybe not my favorite pick to the Cowboys. And, you know, I had a Cowboys fan call me out on it and say, you're wrong, he's going to be excellent. And guess what? He might be right, I could be wrong. It's happened a million times before. So I try not to take it personally, as long as the information I give is with pure intentions and and at least comes from some knowledge or some education of what's, uh, what's going on.
1: Right. The most important thing to remember to everyone is just pump the brakes for a hot second and let's see how everything plays out, at least over the course of a couple seasons, before we can get a feel on who's going to be the next Tom Brady or who's going to be the next great number one pick. Let's just wait and see what happens. Speaking of the number one pick, the Browns, shocking to see them there once again but making a good decision, which might be shocking to some Browns fans, selecting probably the best defensive prospect in the draft in Miles Garrett out of Texas A&M, choice that many had predicted going in, though some had said they might go quarterback. Were you surprised at all with the move? And if you're not, how great of a move was it for Cleveland?
2: Yeah, I never veered off my Garrett to Cleveland pick, and there was some some strong talk that they really were considering Trubisky You know, they were exploring all avenues to try to trade up and get him, et cetera. So, you know, and I believe all that to be true, but I always felt like their smartest play because they had so many picks because they're not in a rush because they're loaded again in the draft in 2018 um, was to take Garrett and worry about the quarterback later. Look, I mean, to me, Mr. Trubisky might be a fine prospect. The bears clearly think so, but you're not going to wreck your whole draft scenario just to take him. I didn't think he was such a once in a generation talent that 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 warranted that. You know, if it truly was this this you know re, you know generational talent at at on defense, no matter what position, let's say pass rusher, well, guess what? You're probably taking the quarterback. I mean, that just you know, especially if you need one, you know, that makes the most sense. But to me, Trubisky, I mean, he was my 15th or 16th overall player, whatever he was. You just don't know. I mean, he's got 13 games. And I think the Browns realized that, hey, we love him, but we also have a very small sample size here. So, you know, they may have tried to, to move up. They couldn't do it. And guess what? They moved back, you know, and they made the, the value play and they ended up getting Deshaun Kaiser. So, yeah, I think they've handled it really well. I didn't love every single pick they made in the draft, but man, they got a lot of talent, a lot of athleticism. So, kudos to them. And, You know, if they don't hit on the Deshaun Kaiser pick, they've got a lot more selections next year to help them out.
1: Speaking of Mitch, Mitchell, whatever he ends up officially deciding to go by, perhaps once he starts playing NFL games, the Bears trade up just one pick, two-thirds and a fourth round, I believe, to jump up so they can draft Trubitsky out of North Carolina. And there was a lot going on when this happened, from John Lynch as the new GM of the 49ers really starting with a bang to be able to get those draft picks for later on in the first round to the Bears drafting a quarterback after they had signed Mike Lennon to a $45 million deal. So there's still the answers that we won't know as to if this guy will end up being a great NFL quarterback, of course, and if this was a brilliant move. What did you take away from that decision? The biggest takeaway, if you will, whether it was what John Lynch did, whether if it was what the bears did or what we should think about Mitchell Trubisky as a whole.
2: Yeah. Let's start with the Niners. I thought they had a great first day of the draft. I mean, incredible almost, you know, they, they, they landed two of their top three or four players uh, with the third and 31st overall picks. I mean, that's just, he can't do much better, and picked up ammo for this year and next year. That's that's an outstanding first stroke, really first two strokes by 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 John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan. You know, Parag Maras and, and the rest of that that front office there. That you know, I mean, it's a team that looks pretty dysfunctional the last couple of years. They got a lot of heat for hiring Lynch. You know, Kyle Shanahan's a first tier head coach. Still, some people out there who think you know his last name. Uh, you know carries weight for him, but guess what? They they've they've kind of handled this thing brilliantly so far, and they weren't so in love with Trubisky that they had to have him. So they said, great, let's move down a slot. We're willing to take that risk, uh, pick up the picks, and they land Solomon Thomas and Reuben Foster. I mean, you can't draw it up any better. And those extra picks allowed them to move back into round one to get to get Foster, who you know went into a free fall because of medical concerns, off field concerns. So from their standpoint, great job. From the Bears standpoint, I think there was an air of desperation saying that we don't want someone to leave for August and take our guy. He was, you know, almost roundly viewed in inside the building as their number one quarterback. You know, almost everybody agreed that he was the best. They really only signed Glenn into what amounts to a one year deal. So that, you know, at the most they'll pay him is about twenty million bucks, eighteen and a half guaranteed. Plus his base salary and all that, so they think you know what, he's okay as a one-year starter. We don't have to force Trubisky into the lineup. If he's ready. He's ready. If he's not, we play Glennon, and then we you know we worry about it after the season. We see where we're at. We see whether we're keeping John Fox. We see whether we're keeping the same system. So you know, I didn't necessarily think it was the greatest value move of all time, and their their draft picks that followed it up three small school guys or an injury guy. Well, you know, that didn't make me feel any better. But if Trubisky hits, if he's a star, it's going to be well worth it.
1: There were some reports that the Bears made this decision, as you mentioned, because they feared someone else would jump ahead to take him. But others said that they were really just battling themselves, that there weren't other teams that were even thinking about moving up to that second pick. Did you get any feel as to what was really going on and if they maybe could have just waited till the third pick? Yeah, I mean,
2: in the end, they probably could have, because the Niners didn't want to move out of the top. Really, six or seven picks there weren't any teams in that range that really were were dying to move up. So, yeah, in the end, they probably could have stayed put and gotten their guy. But we don't know that. I mean, maybe San Francisco accepts a lesser deal, or they they panic and they say, you know what, we we just we don't want to sit here at two, and they would have gotten Foster, and then they would have gotten somebody else. So. You know, if you're the Bears, you don't have that information. Uh, Were they bidding against themselves? Maybe. Probably. But they don't know that, you know, and they felt like the risk was well worth it in their eyes.
1: You mentioned Solomon Thomas going three to the 49ers, and we can't fault them for that, obviously. After that, we had the Jaguars pick Leonard Fournette and then had the Titans go a wide receiver with Corey Davis at five. And a two-parter here, I guess, if you will, are you surprised in a way at this recent trend now where teams aren't afraid to take running backs or wide receivers that early? We saw that happen with the fourth pick last year in Ezekiel Elliott and what he's done with Dallas. And then overall, what you think about how Leonard Fournette might fit in with the Jaguars and the same with Corey Davis with Tennessee, who seem to be pretty full at those positions you would normally take in the top five, such as defensive line or, or somebody to help fill those voids. That might really work well for Marcus Mariota with him.
2: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, can Corey Davis separate at the NFL level and be a true number one receiver Maybe. Yeah, I think he could. I, I He's got some, some real special abilities to him. The injury obviously prevented him from running in a 40-yard dash. We don't know his true speed, but you saw it on tape for four years. I mean, he, he put up some big, big numbers, uh, and not just against Mac teams too. You know, I mean, he, he performed against better teams too, with only a couple of exceptions, like Michigan State in 2015. You know, Wisconsin held him down last year until the, you know, kind of the, the – the, the, end of game, you know, uh, touchdown, which is a spectacular catch. But yeah, I thought, I thought John Ross was a better pick for them. That's just my opinion. It's not, you know, I thought they needed a speed guy to help open things up, but um, they felt like Davis was the better run blocker, the better all around receiver. He can be a high point guy for Mariota. He can be a red zone guy, all those different things. So uh, they felt comfortable with the choice. I can't knock him for that. As far as the trend of running backs, you know, Next year we're going to have Saquon Barkley, and we're going to have Darius Geis and we're going to have uh, you know Sony Michelle and other running backs. So to me, it's about the talent as opposed to some like trend or something. Because you know Trent Richardson a few years back was a miserable pick, and I loved him coming out. I'll I'll admit it. But you know about the individual talents. It's not a, an Ezekiel Elliott effect, I don't think. Because Fournette's such a different back. Christian McCaffrey is such a different back. Those guys are going to be used in different ways. Than Elliott was with Dow. So if you've got the support system, great. Then you take the pick and you don't worry about the positional value as much because Fournette's special. You know, McCaffrey is special, I think, it, you know, in very different ways, but they can help, uh, you know, change and diversify an offense. So yeah, were there other options for him? Sure. But that really helps out Blake Bortles. They just picked up his option. They probably knew that going into the draft. And if Bortles can't get it done with, a lot of second and fours and and you know really favorable situations and a running back who can help him out then you know he's not our guy and we can move on from there
1: since nfl fans love talking about quarterbacks i'll throw the next two out here for a discussion that went in the draft the chiefs traded up to snag patrick mahomes out of texas tech a school which we know always has a high flying offense but whose quarterbacks don't always necessarily make it into the nfl do you think he might be the quarterback that could change that trend and find success in the league?
2: Well, it was it was a fascinating and, and dramatic move, and we'd heard the rumors that they really liked him. When they w- didn't look like they'd had enough ammo to get up there to that range. I, I, I wasn't sure they'd be able to get up high enough to get their guy, and that's why I didn't really think it was going to go down, but it did, and credit to them. They were willing to give up their number one next year. You know, Andy Reid has been looking for his next far for years now. He came close with Donovan McNabb. I'm not the biggest McNabb fan ever, but you can't deny his, his work. And Reid got the a more controlled quarterback when he was in Green Bay. You know, he made Nick Foles look effective. You know, he had other quarterbacks with A.J. Feely look good for a stretch. I mean, Andy Reid to me is the quarterback whisperer. I really think he's that good a coach, one of the best offensive and especially quarterback coaches the league has seen in the last 25 years. So Mahomes could not have landed in a better spot. If he can't make it there, he can't make it anywhere in my opinion. So um, I really believe that Alex Smith starts this year, maybe even next year. I mean, this could be an Aaron Rodgers type deal where you wait two years even, but then you have something truly special because the physical gifts that Mahomes has, few quarterbacks really do possess. What
1: I found interesting as well is while they were reviewing tape on the quarterbacks they might take, it was reported that they had Alex Smith in the room for the whole process. So I don't know how he feels about potentially watching the next person that will take his job, but I guess in a way you have to tip your cap for being so open about seeing who they're going to take, having their quarterback in there and being like, hey, eventually we're going to have to move on. Father time is undefeated. Just don't tell Tom Brady that quite yet. We had the Texans also trade up, snagging Clemson's savior, Deshaun Watson, at 12. And for Houston, this was rumored that they might make this choice. We've seen what Deshaun Watson can do in big games and know that the Texans are really a quarterback away from potentially making a run deep into the postseason. How well do you think he'll end up fitting with Bill O'Brien and how long until we might even see him on the field for the Texans?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. It's a great match of the most NFL ready of these quarterbacks in this class in Watson, all the big game experience he's had, you know, he's, he's ready. He's not going to be, the moment's not going to be too big for him. And you match that up with the team that is perhaps closest. You could argue the chiefs too, but you know, the, the closest to a super bowl without having a quarterback. I mean, you could argue that the chiefs could get to a super bowl without Smith. You could argue that, you know, they, they, They almost beat the Steelers at home, you know, so they're right there. The Texans, however, probably not getting to a Super Bowl with Tom Savage. I still think he begins the season as a starter, and they probably get through the first quarter of the season and and kind of make a call. You know, they have a tough schedule. They play New England week three. After that, you can kind of reset things and say, wait, where are we? You know, is Deshaun ready to step in? We've taken a little pressure off him. He's not our week one guy. This is me guessing, of course. But we do that, and then you decide, do we need him? Do we want him? Is this this what we do? So I suspect he'll be the first rookie of this class uh, to step in, uh, unless there's an injury or something like that. But, yeah, I think Watson's in a really nice place. I do think the Texans wanted Mahomes more, though. I think they made that move knowing that that was our guy. Darn it. We missed out on him. Now we have to trade up and get Deshaun Watson. You could just see it by the war room, you know, reaction. They were very stoic. It did feel like it was a plan B for them, but I think it's a good plan B. I don't think it was it was a, a terrible fallback to get Deshaun Watson and everything he's done.
1: I've already read many of your grades and will include those in my show notes, but I of course have to ask the cliched question when it comes to talking about the NFL draft and give you the opportunity to speak on who you think won the draft and who you think lost (laughs) the draft as people love to call it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had to criticize the bears, you know, obviously for the value move we talked about at the top of the show and and uh, with Trubisky, that you know that hurt. Uh, you, we don't know if he's going to be a great quarterback. There's not a ton of evidence right now to say, you know, he for sure will. There, you know, it's a risk. But following that up with, you know, Adam Shaheen from Ashland College, you know, a guy who's playing D2 basketball a few years ago, uh, you know, not somebody I had high in my top 100 list at number 45. That's a that's a reach. That's a risk. You know, to, to go back and get Eddie Jackson, very talented, but very injury-prone safety from Alabama in round four. They didn't have a round three pick. They gave that up. You know, then, you know, Tara Cohen from uh, North Carolina a and a very small running back. He's got some Sproles-like ability. But, you know, I mean, small school, small frame, that's a risk. You know, and just every pick they made carried a, a major potential for, for, for failure. And if they all hit, he looks like a genius. i Ryan Pace does. I think they, they swung for the fences a lot, but I think there's going to be a few strikes. Raiders Broncos. I didn't love their drafts. I thought they made some some missteps uh, on the good end. Obviously the Cleveland Browns, we talked about, I really like their first three uh, picks. I really like the Kaiser pick in round two. They got on low rounds as well. Everybody on that team should play earlier, you know, except for Kaiser. Um, Tampa Bay, I thought, knocked it out of the park. You know, they didn't have as many selections as Cleveland did, but every pick made sense. Every pick, there was no reaches. There was just that a really good sense of value fit. So I really like their draft a lot. And I didn't give out a ton of A's or B's, but I gave out enough to. to there were some teams that did some pretty good work out the say.
1: When it comes to overall stories from just the players in general that get drafted whether they come from the first round or the last round or even players that don't get drafted and then get signed after the draft is done most notably on the first day there was garrett Bowles with his newborn son walking him around to Karis mckinley dropping f-bombs on national tv while also making that great story about his grandmother and what she meant to him before the draft Is there a storyline involving all the things that go into these players that sticks out to you from the draft that you may have heard of or one you may have even covered as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I knew a little bit about Bowles and McKinley, and and I talked to both those guys at the NFL Combine. They faced each other last season, and, you know, both have overcome a lot to get to where they are. So it was cool to see them go uh, in, like, a little six-pick span there or whatever it was. I maybe it was a little – uh yeah 20 to 26 wherever it was there at the end of the, the 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 first round so you love hearing those stories guys who have you know faced their demons and overcome long odds to get to that point they've worked hard they've put in the time and they deserve to get picked in those spots so those are great triumphant stories I wish we could have heard Travis Rudolph's name called I mean he's a Florida State receiver first of all if you saw last season there was a kid with uh um, some some developmental issues at his school. Who was nobody would sit with him at lunch. And Travis Rudolph, unprompted, didn't know anyone was nearby. Didn't know there were cameras nearby. Went over and sat with him and just spent some time with the kids, Formed a relationship with him. Didn't tell the media. Wasn't seeking attention. But the mother of the son brought it to Facebook's attention and everybody you know, put it up and it went viral. And he's a real humble kid. And right before the draft, his father was accidentally shot in kind of a crazy you know, wrong place, wrong time deal. And and you just feel so bad for the kid. Like he, you know, people are going to get drafted on their football ability, but you wish somebody like that could have had a little brief moment of healing. It was too bad that 253 selections win Cause he's a pretty good football player too. Uh, and he didn't get to hear his name. So I felt bad for that, but you know what? It'll make it even better story when he, you know, makes a team and, and, you know, finds a way to success despite not hearing his name. So that is, there is that even if you don't hear your name called you can still be a a terrific player in this league
1: the last one to get you out of here are there a couple projects you have coming up that people can keep an eye out for as far as the writing goes before you have to get immersed with everything come uh, the middle of the summer
2: yeah i've got a lot of stuff going on right now i'm doing some actually some fun music stuff that relates to the nfl i'll kind of leave the mystery on that uh, I'm working on a story about how there are no left handed quarterbacks left. I mean, there's a few, but what happened, you know, to all the the Mark Brunells and Steve Youngs of the world? They just don't exist these days. So I talked to a lot of people about that uh, at the Super Bowl, the Combine, different places. So I've been compiling stuff for that. Uh, and then we do our Shutdown Corner. That's the name of the, the blog on Yahoo Sports. Shutdown Corner looks back. And then Frank Schwab and I and Shalise Manzi Young, Jay Busby, our other writers. We kind of look at some weird historical stories in the NFL that got lost to time a little bit. You know, I, I wrote one about how a, a Packers kicker uh, was was doing cocaine at halftime and then kicked the game or I was about to kick the game winning field goal in 1980, ends up running it in off a bad snap or off a block uh, for a touchdown. It's, you know, crazy stories like that that you may not have heard before that we try to dig up and, and and put a, a bow on and a fresh coat of paint on. So those are fun for us, and they'll be we'll be rolling those out a, a few per week uh, for the rest of the uh, spring and summer.
1: That's good that you mentioned all that. I know you guys are able to keep us entertained when the games aren't actually going on. So looking forward to that. And Eric, thanks so much again for dropping by, talking about some of the things you've written about in the past and with the draft and breaking down all the things that happen. Once we get to the games, it'll be a lot more exciting. But it is nice to have somebody that knows about these guys, at least before we can see them on the field and get excited for another NFL season. So I appreciate you coming on. It was great to get some knowledge from you.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, it's a fun process and and love uh, writing about it and talking about it. Thank you.
1: We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or player or coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, regarding the NFL Draft, good try, good effort to former Jets fullback Tony Richardson. Once NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell is done reveling in booze while announcing picks in the opening round and the second round, an array of different voices will be heard, making the picks from there forward, usually with a certain tie to each franchise. In the third round, the New York Jets elected Tony Richardson to announce their 79th pick, which was curious because he only played his last three of 16 seasons in the league with the Jets and earned his three Pro Bowl selections with the Chiefs and Vikings, but he was part of the last Jets team that made the playoffs back in 2010 when he also won the Walter Payton Award. He'll also make it to the Hall of Fame one day, so it's understandable that they chose him to make the pick. However, while doing a little ad-libbing before the announcement, Richardson made a faux pas on par with the likes of the Butt Fumble. Who knew a four-letter word that's part of one of the most famous team chants in sports could cause so much trouble?
0: With the 79th pick in the 2017 NFL Draft, the New York J-E-T-E Jets, J-E-T-E Jets, Jets. J-E-T-E Jets, Select our Darius Stewart, receiver, Alabama. Good
1: job, good, job. good effort. Good effort. Good job. Good try, good effort to the boos of Eagles fans. Before that Jets pick, former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Drew Pearson was tasked with making their 60th pick in the second round. The former Super Bowl champion and three-time All-Pro stepped up to the podium, eager to irk the thousands and thousands of rival Eagles fans in attendance. And even while the crowd booed and booed, Pearson only yelled louder and louder.
0: To announce the Dallas Cowboys selection... Welcome, the University of Tulsa wide receiver Drew Pearson. All right, how about them Cowboys? I want to thank the Eagle. Fans. to be selected to make the Cowboys second round draft pick and on behalf of the five top
1: And lastly good try good effort to the poor poor los angeles clippers chris paul is one of the best point guards in the nba but is often criticized for never being able to lead the clippers out of the gallows of the second round of the playoffs That conversation happened much too early this year when L.A. was eliminated in the first round by the Utah Jazz. To make matters worse, this is now the fifth year in a row that the Clippers blew a lead in the playoffs to lose the series, the first time in NBA history that a team has done so. It started in 2013 when L.A. blew a 2-0 lead to the Memphis Grizzlies. They won the first game against the Oklahoma City Thunder before losing in seven games in 2014, then built a 3-1 lead over the Houston Rockets in 2016 before losing three in a row to blow that series. They held a 2-0 advantage over the Portland Trailblazers in 2016 before losing that and led the Jazz two games to one before losing in seven games this year. Granted, some of those series were marred by the ill effects of Don Sterling and injuries to star players, but this curse of sorts has been painful to say the least. There's always room, however, for more Lakers fans. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review as well. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll get back into the NBA playoffs, dive into some more baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge keeping you connected with all things sports.